encouraged and excited to be here with you this morning. We're uh, concluding week one of 21 Days of Prayer, so that has been going well for me. I hope it's going well for you. I uh, can't say it enough. I really believe that this emphasis, 21 Days of Prayer, we've been doing this now for, I, I think, six or seven years at this point, is probably one of the most important things that we do together as a church. I mean, when you think about it, uh, when else in life do we really kind of just stop collectively for 21 days as a body, as a family, and make a concerted effort to pray? And this year, we're praying for, the key word is breakthroughs, okay? I don't know about you, uh, but I could use some breakthroughs in my life. I could use breakthroughs in my personal life. I could use breakthroughs, obviously, in this church. I would love to see God do incredible things in and through the ministry of this church. As I've been praying about these breakthroughs, I keep coming back to John chapter 4. You might remember this story, the woman at the well. Uh, you're familiar with that one. Uh, you remember her story, if you remember it, uh, she's a social outcast. Uh, she's lived the kind of life that has kind of built up an enemy list for her. And so when Jesus meets her, he meets her at the well in an hour when people didn't typically come to the well to get their water. Uh, she went there at that time to avoid the stares, the gossip, all of that, um, just so people would leave her alone. And it's at that hour when no one goes to the well normally that she meets the Savior of the world. And he offers her living water. And he discloses to her, listen, I know everything about you. The good, the bad, the ugly. And I'm here to tell you that God accepts you. That there is forgiveness. That there is acceptance in him. Now, Jesus' disciples are gone through this entire interaction. They're going into the village to get some food. They come back. They're like, what in the world is he doing right now? Why is he talking to her? And so they offer him some food, and Jesus says to them in that moment, I have another kind of food that you know nothing about. Now, if you read the Gospels, you know that there are times when Jesus said stuff, and the disciples are like, huh? And maybe you felt that way personally. You've read the Bible and you've read a spiritual truth and you're just kind of scratching your head a little bit. What? Huh? Well, Jesus wants to make a profound point. They have been holding on to some biases. And listen to his response to the disciples. He says this, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planters and harvesters alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others have already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. As I've been thinking about this passage, I've been praying and I've been saying, God, what if we saw the world with Jesus' eyes? Think about his situation. You know, sometimes we can kind of look in the current moment and get 
pessimistic and say, oh, you know, people are walking away from God. It's discouraging. Never in the time in history before have people done such and such a thing. But I got to say this. When Jesus presents this optimism, there's not like one Christian yet. He's at this well. He's talking to this woman that no one wants to associate. And the only thing that he can see is opportunity. What if we all thought like that? What if in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, we didn't sit there and get downcast towards people? We said, man, I see another soul that, that God's interested in, that God loves. You know, I've been having conversations with people recently. Some people have reached out to me. I've never met them before. And they said, hey, let's go and connect. And I, I just want to talk to you. I want to understand you a little more. And, and they come to me and we meet and they say, what's missing in my life? They're searching. They're hungry. The harvest is plentiful. As I'm praying about 2024 and as I'm connecting those dots I'm just saying, Lord, I want more of that. I want more of those kind of breakthroughs. I want Osterville Baptist Church to be filled with people who are spiritually searching, who want to know you, because I believe that this is an incredible spiritual family, that we could help people come to know Jesus, grow in Jesus, and become disciples of Jesus. I got to say, church, if you pray with me in that regard, I would be so happy. I'd be so grateful. Let's trust God for 2024. Now, let's get into our scripture this morning. We're in Philippians chapter 3, and I just want to say, just to forewarn you, as I read these verses, this is actually some of the most colorful language that Paul uses in all of the New Testament, perhaps other than Galatians 5.12. I'm not going to go there this morning. You can read that on your own. That's for another sermon at another time, but the reason Paul comes out so forceful is he believes in what he's addressing, that this is a great spiritual danger to the advancement of the gospel. And so he takes it head on. Now, let me read it to you, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, have you ever thought about your attitude or your perspective as a protection to you? Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. In other words, as you cultivate the right kind of attitude in the Lord, you are actually protecting your faith, strengthening your faith. Paul says, I'll keep telling you these things so that you do that. Now we come to the colorful language. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say, you must be circumcised to be saved. Okay, Paul, you really don't like what these people are doing. We'll get to that in just a minute. Let me just kind of imagine something with you before we do that. Imagine with me that we invite a, a really well-known, renowned speaker to the church. It's someone we're really excited about. They deliver a great message. And this speaker comes to us, and they're engaged with the pastoral staff, the elders of the 
church, the general membership of the church, and as speakers do, when they get up and they try to build a rapport with an audience, they pay the audience a compliment so that there's some kind of connection established, and they say this. They say, of all of the congregations that I've visited, and I've visited many, after meeting with your staff, the elders, you guys, I just have to say that you have the most Pharisees of any church I've ever been to. Now, you laugh. Quick show of hands. How many of you received that as a compliment? Well, maybe you guys just don't know how to take a good compliment. Isn't it interesting that if a speaker were to say that during the days of Jesus, it would be a totally different be like, oh, thank you. So maybe the compliment's just 2,000 years too late. Maybe that's what it is. Here's the thing, these Pharisees in Jesus' day, the name itself meant separated ones. They were the sold out of the sold out. You know, we talk about people today with admiration. We say, oh, man, she is sold out for the Lord. We admire that in that person, don't we? We think to ourselves, that's how I ought to be in faith. They were sold out. They knew the scriptures forward and backward. They knew all 613 commandments that they had pulled out of the Bible and said that these things are really important. Not only did they follow those commandments, but they also put boundaries around those commandments because they didn't want to offend God in any way. Now, a great book that I read just this week, it's by Larry Osborne, and it's titled Accidental Pharisees. I you pick it up, read it on your own at some point. But I want to read a quote that he says in this book. He says, If we fail to remember how spiritually impressive the Pharisees were, we will remain blind to the danger of becoming like them. Here's the truth this morning. Passionate faith can have a dark side. Do you agree with that? It can have a dark side. And no one understood this better than the Apostle Paul. No one. No one saw it hurt the church more, hurt the advancement of the gospel. I was talking to someone between services, and I said, listen, of all the things that I've watched, damage of church, it's what we're talking about this morning. It's not people on the outside trying to hurt the church. It's not sinners who are sinning. It's zeal gone wrong. And Paul, as he's speaking, he uses really forceful words. He calls them dogs. Now, even now, I don't like being called a dog. Do you like being called a dog? And some dogs have better lives than I have. Uh, back in Jesus' day, however, they were like a pack of ravenous animals that everyone found disgusting, and he's calling them dogs. He says, evil ones mutilators. What is that? Well, if circumcision has no spiritual value and you're telling someone to do it for spiritual value, then you're just telling them to mutilate themselves, he's saying. This group that Paul's addressing, um, we call them Judaizers today. Now, these are Christians who came out of a Jewish background 
And they started going around circuiting and telling Gentile Christians, those who did not come from a Jewish background, that yes, Jesus is important, and you need to believe in his death and his resurrection, but you also, if you really want salvation, you must go through the Mosaic law. Get circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, no that damages the gospel, that confuses the truth. Do not submit yourselves to that. And I get it. Listen, we're all listening to this today. You know, the Pharisees are our favorite people to hate in the New Testament. We're like, amen, Brother Paul. Totally agree with you. Keep hitting them. Call them dogs, mutilators. I'm right there with you. Red meat for the church. But here's a question I have for us all. Why do you think the Holy Spirit thinks it's important to warn us about this attitude over and over and over again? Well, it's because zeal can turn dark. It can happen in any one of us. It starts off with pure motives. I meet Jesus. I get excited about my faith in him. It's so encouraging. I have met the God of the universe. I have spiritual salvation. I get, develop a hunger for him. I go into the scriptures. I want to understand more about God, so I start reading good theology. I want to align my life with my faith, so I start doing things for God, giving money to God. But at some point, it turns dark because now I'm doing all of this, but I'm also looking next to me, to the right or the left, and I'm saying to myself, well, why isn't she as passionate about him as I am? Poof. A new Pharisee has been born. What does an accidental Pharisee look like? Well, most of all, They love to compare. And obviously, my theological preferences, my personal causes, my political bent, my preferred sins, you know, the ones that I kind of do that are less bad, but I don't do the sins that other people do, all of these things represent God's gold standard. Surely, if everyone loved God like, like I do, They would think just like me, act just like me, look just like me. Osborne says, overzealous faith is hard to self-diagnose. It's almost always true to scripture, but it's not true to all scripture. It's partially right. It fixates on one area of God's will, for instance, defending the faith while ignoring other parts doing so kindly and gently. Scripture says that this comparison game that we can fall into just doesn't go well for us. It just doesn't work. Here's a couple of reasons. Reason number one, uh, none of us, no two people are the same. So you don't have the same genetic makeup, 
the same learning capabilities, the same talents, you weren't born into the same family, you weren't taught necessarily the same values, weren't born in the same part of the world as other people. It's like comparing apples with oranges. Uh, Some people love study. They can open up the Bible, they can read for hours, they retain the things that they're reading. Other people are like, I read three verses, my memory is a goldfish, I walked away, I don't remember anything I just read. Now, the studious person all of a sudden becomes spiritually superior and the one who can't remember, even though maybe they love mercy. Jesus says another reason it's not good is because we all have this thing called log eye disease. What is that? Well, it means I have this giant log hanging out of my eye, even though I like to be a speck inspector towards other people. They're flaws. Scripture says you're not God. In Romans 14, Paul, addressing this same attitude, says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? They're not mine. I'm not responsible for them. Each one of us, he says, must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We must answer for ourselves. But here's the thing this is hard. We all compare. We all fall into the trap. So here's what Paul does. He said, okay, you want to do that? You want to go there? You want to compare? Let's do this. You pull out your spiritual scorecard, and I'll pull out my spiritual scorecard, and we're going to lay them right beside one another, and we'll see who does better in the eyes of the world in terms of righteousness. So look at where he goes here. He says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, you might be looking at his scorecard today and say, well, that's not that impressive, Paul. I don't really care about these things. You know, I I read the Bible for an hour. That's what makes me spiritually superior. Just look at this in terms of his abilities as a person. Okay, first, one of the things that we often fall in the rut is our pedigree. You know, where I was born, did you hit the genetic lottery or not hit it, right? Well, Paul hit the spiritual genetic lottery. He was like a spiritual trust fund child, if you will circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he was born into a house that was righteous, a a true national Israeli citizen, not some convert from the outside, of the tribe of Benjamin, of all the tribes. After all, Jerusalem was right in the center of Benjamin's territory. But he doesn't leave it just to his heritage, his bloodline. No, he's leaving nothing to chance. So he joined Pharisees. Pharisee, he is trained 
under the Ivy League of all Ivy League guys, Gamaliel. He is the rabbi, the, the, the host with the most, if you will. He knows the law of God inside and out. If you got a tutelage with him, you were the best. See, passion, please, Paul would do anything for his faith, even go after the enemies of God. Look at verse 6. You'll see one more thing that he did. He says, the righteous requirements of the law, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, notice he doesn't say I was perfect or I was sinless. He says I was blameless. He had followed those 613 commandments to a T. He was peerless, peerless. He says, I did it all. No one's going to score like I did in this spiritual game of comparisons. You know, I remember when I was a boy playing Little League Baseball. And our team started doing pretty good. You know, we're going to the Little League series, you know what I'm saying, like beating some teams with a good walloping, and we started getting little egos about ourselves, thinking we were pretty hot stuff. So one of the mothers gets up in front of the team and gives us a lecture, and she says, oh, you guys, you think you're so good, don't you? And yeah, we do. She says, listen, there's always someone out there who's better than you are. You need to remember that. Now, in my case, we didn't have to look that far. I was like the worst kid on the team. Like I played two innings a game. That's what the coach had to do. He had to put me in for two innings. I hit the ball once all season. But her point was still valid. If you live by the comparison game, you're going to die by the comparison game. Uh, comparison creates spiritual winners and spiritual losers. And if you're trying to obtain your righteousness in this comparison game, Paul is saying you are going to lose 100 times out of 100 times. Why? Well, you have to go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount now. In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is giving his manifest God's will and, and what God wants in his kingdom, he says this statement. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And everyone's jaw hits the floor. Are you telling me that I've got to be more righteous than the Navy seals of faith? Are you kidding me, Jesus? He says, absolutely. Because remember, zeal has a dark side. These people who were passionate about God, who loved God, when God visited them, they crucified him. And it turns out that we're no better. We would do the same thing. We love comparison just as much as anyone else. We're all flawed. You have to look at the Bible's history and church history to see this. You know, Scripture shows us something really powerful, that, that God does his work. He draws straight lines, his perfect work, with a bunch of crooked sticks. Think about Abraham. Did he have any problems? Moses? Murderer? David, an adulterer? Peter, a denier? Not once, not twice, but thrice? 
Paul a persecutor? You know what's interesting about us as we're evaluating our spiritual heroes and, and our spiritual nemesises? If someone's alive today and they have a big platform and, and they fall morally, well, we love to hate them. We go on the internet and we blog about how evil they are and how could this have happened and how could we let so-and-so preach and do all of that kind of stuff. But tell you what, let that person die and let like a couple of decades pass and now they're venerated as a saint. Look at church history. Uh, some of the church fathers who we, uh, you know, really stand on their shoulders with our theology, looked at their th theology comprehensively, we wouldn't let some of them teach a junior high Sunday school class because they were not in orthodoxy in that area. And yet somehow God used them. What about the reformers? Well, think about a guy like John Calvin. He stood back and allowed his followers to torture and murder a guy who did not hold to the Trinity and to their understanding of infant baptism. Yet, John Calvin was used greatly by God. He's quoted all the time. What about Martin Luther? Embarrassing anti-Semitic remarks. Like, really bad. And yet, I don't think we'd be talking about justification by faith today without him. What about more current? John Wesley, A.W. Tozer, Bob Pierce from World Vision. Hmm sinfully neglected their families, sacrificed the family on the altar of ministry, and yet God did things through them. Now, what are we supposed to do with all of this information? Should we kind of go back in history and say, okay, John Calvin's gone, Martin Luther, he's got to go. Should we cancel all of these people? Well, here's one of my favorite verses in scripture. Cancel not lest ye be canceled. Okay? Because if your life was scrutinized to the level that many of these lives are scrutinized, if we had that public platform, I'm not convinced that we would measure up either. That's why Paul gets to where he is this morning. He says, you know that scorecard? I threw it on the ground. I took out my Zippo lighter fluid. I doused it with it, and I set it on fire. Why? Look at the next verses. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I mean, look at those two words that he uses to describe his scorecard. Verse 7, worthless. And if you look at verse 8, garbage. You know what that word garbage translates as? Dung. You know what God, in his eyes, he wants you to think the next time that you're having that one-hour quiet time or you're saying to yourself, oh boy, I, I'm fasting like the best of them or I've told another person about Jesus this week or I gave more money than anyone else to the church. He wants you to sit there and think about the smell of manure. And here's the deal with your righteousness. It doesn't even help gardens grow. He's saying it's worthless. It adds no spiritual value to your salvation. If you're resting on those things, you are just as lost 
as the prostitute. So Paul says, I don't count on that stuff anymore. I don't put my hope in that, my petty pride. Instead, I embrace grace. Now, what is grace? Well, grace is humble acceptance. Grace is saying, my scorecard is manure, but Jesus Christ's scorecard is gold. And if I have the choice between the two scorecards, I burn this one and I receive that one. In fact, here's what's so incredible about the gospel. It's called imputation. Okay, what is imputation? It means that my rubbish scorecard at the cross was credited to Jesus. He died in my place there. And at the cross and in the resurrection, I get to receive his perfect standard scorecard. Paul says in verse 9, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So what does this mean about my life and your life? Well, think about how much energy, if you're really being honest with yourself this morning, we spend on trying to make ourselves look good. And everyone does it in different ways. Some of us are making ourselves look good because I wear the right kind of clothes, I have the right kind of job, I live in the right kind of house. Others of us, uh, you know, it's kind of in vogue today to be aligned with the right kind of passion or think about uh, the right kind of political thoughts and beliefs. Some of us take it to the spiritual level. I read the Bible. I know the right nuances in theology. I'm trying to look good. And Paul says, if that's how you are managing your spiritual life, you've got it all wrong. You need to put your energy elsewhere. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is where our energy needs to go. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. If you really want to understand this passage this morning, it's all about saying, listen, I'm not going to spend all of my energy anymore trying to look good. I'm going to spend my time and energy trying to know the one who is good. What does that look like? Well, think about all the things we do in the spiritual life. Why are you reading your Bible? You have your little Bible plan and are you going through the Bible plan because you want to be able to check the boxes because you think Jesus will be happy with you if you do that? Are you fasting for 21 days because that's going to take you to a new spiritual level? Are you giving for that reason? Are you going to the homeless shelter or doing acts of mercy for that reason? Paul says that's not what it's about. It's about him. Do you really want to know him? And I do. And if you really want to know him, then all of those things becomes means of knowing him better. He says, I want to know him so much that I want every area, every aspect of my life to be about knowing him, even my suffering. 
And you can come to know someone through suffering. Uh, I hear people say things like, no one understood, uh, I didn't really understand cancer until I went through it, right? And then you meet that person and you share that experience and it's just totally different, right? It's deeper. Paul is saying the same thing. I want to approach life and death just like Jesus. And the way Jesus approached death is he said, not my will be done, but yours. So however I die, I want to do it like him. Whether it's old and on my deathbed or some other means, I want to die faithfully like he did. Paul's saying, I'm not interested in taking my a little better failed scorecard and setting it next to your a little worse fail scorecard. He's saying, throw it away. Burn it. It's rubbish. Take Jesus' scorecard. Know him. Really know him. Lord, this morning as we're receiving from your word, as we've lifted our hearts up in worship, as we heard that prayer offered up, all of this is about knowing Jesus. In my own righteousness, in our own righteousness, we are flawed. We're sinful. But in Christ, we can become what you intended at the creation of the world as you thought about us, as you brought us into this world in love. We can become what you would want us to be. I pray for us this year. I pray that, that our motivation for this life of faith would be aligned with yours. That we would be so passionate, but not that dark side of passionate, passionate because we know you and we love you and we want to follow you and encouraging as we share about our faith experience it's not because mine's better than yours because God's working in my life and I'm so excited about it as we talk to people on the outside like that woman at the well that we talked about and we tell them about our faith it just pours out of a heart of joy and gratitude we know God and we want you to know him. Work in us, Lord. Move in this body. Break through <laughs> the hard ground that can be our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name.